turned on here. How about that? For those of you that want to watch by Facebook, uh, of course, if you're trying to do that, you're not getting our feed right now. And um, we've done everything we know to do to restore that feed, and it's not happening. Uh, Nina has texted some individuals. Come on, hon. Nina has texted individuals um, personally and let them know that that's the case and steered them over to the website, I trust, right? Yes. To the website link. So hopefully you've been able to join us via the website. John has joined us from California. We're going to bring him in from the green room here in just a moment. And uh, let me describe to you what we're doing. So once again, great to have you with us in the service this morning in the congregation. And for those of you that are viewing via our live stream feed, um, welcome. I'm Jeff. I'm the... Uh, uh, lead pastor here at Genesis Gathering, and joining me this morning are my wife and then my son-in-law, Matt. And it's it, what we're going to do, we're in between series, and so a couple times a year, I like to do this where we just have a Q&A. So this is open Q&A. You can ask any question that you'd like about really any subject that you'd like. I mean, generally speaking, we, we'd like to think that it's going to be about something spiritual or biblical or whatever, but uh, it's fine to ask us something more personal or about the church or whatever, because the idea and the design of this is uh, that you get to uh, engage regarding information that you don't normally uh, get to hear. Subjects that don't get addressed in our series or something you've been dying to know, maybe about the church or about myself and Nina or whatever, and there's never an opportunity to ask that. And so this is your opportunity. So really nothing is off limits here. I, I would say uh, on a whole that uh, I steer away from uh, political things and the political climate just because I don't use our pulpit to, to uh, join uh, uh, the state of nationalism and, and uh, whatever you might feel about our nation with uh, spiritual things necessarily. That's not altogether wrong, and if you have something burning in your heart and you'd like to know some information or some, some sort of scripture about it or how it plays, then I'll be happy to answer it. But generally speaking, I do steer away from purely political content. Um, Again, I apologize for not being able to bring up our uh, Facebook Live um, chat and uh, response here. Uh, done everything we know to do that way. So um, if you've joined us, you normally watch us via Facebook, and you've joined us on our website, I might ask you to go ahead and send that information and that correction to somebody else that you know that you wanted to invite along or that you might, you know, I'm sorry? YouTube. Ah, you can watch us via YouTube. And what would they do to get us on YouTube? Okay, so our YouTube link is on the Genesis Gathering page. So if you go out to our website, genesiscc.net, then you will find on the homepage, I assume, a link to our YouTube channel. So it's being broadcast there as well. Oh, yes, yeah, most definitely. So for those of you that are uh, watching via the live stream, if you'd like to participate and submit a question, then you can do so by using the contact form on the website. Just scroll down to the bottom of the homepage and you will find the button Contact Us. And click on that and all you have to put in is your name and then whatever your comment or your question is and you can dialogue with us that way. 
Um, since Facebook isn't up right now, that's not a means to dialogue with us, but I believe YouTube has a chat. Um, does it not? Is that something? All right, so we have that chat being monitored as well. But maybe the most direct way would be to text us at 720-878-3323. Again, 720-878-3323. Well, let's jump into this. Can we bring John into it? And uh, excuse me just a minute, everyone, while I make an adjustment to center our monitor so that we don't have to look away or over to the side or, or whatever when John is speaking. John, can you hear me okay? Pretty much. Uh, how, about how about you guys? Could you hear me all right? Oh, man. You're, I good, think you good, sound good. the best of any of us right now. Well, see that now? I wonder why that is, because my good friend Jeff and Nina's bought me this gorgeous microphone over here that you can't see, but that's probably why it sounds so good. So be sure to keep him front and center, uh, Lewis. Um, <coughs> boost him in a separate uh, volume there on the uh, eCam called, uh, I don't know what it's called. I think it's called interview. <laughs> but, it's, but it only shows up when we're interviewing somebody. So this feature is part of our software. We don't use it very often, but we have had John and another speaker or two come to us via remote like this, and we just love this. John, I've described to you the purpose of this and the function, it's, it's open. And really, I have a beginning question from another pastor. So I'm going to, I'm going to read you the, the question and uh, John, this is specifically to you. So, oh, uh, oh my, okay. Okay, this is from Wes Dunbar. I know you've dialogued with Wes. He loves your writings, your, your book, the Melchizedek uh, book. He loves that. And he's been walking through the book of Revelation with his church and teaching on it chapter by chapter. So here hmm. is Wes Dunbar's, Pastor Wes Dunbar's question to John this morning. I know John has been reaching, or been reaching through Revelation, teaching, I think he meant to say. I've not been able to listen to the messages. I'm also teaching Revelation and would love to hear what John thinks is the most important big picture message for Christian living from Revelation. Is it easy? It is easy to get lost in all of the details of the visions of heaven and earth, but what is the big takeaway for Christians living today? Good question. That's a great question. So I've, I've been, been teaching on the book of Revelation for almost a solid year now. Today I'm finally hit chapters 20 and 21. That'll be our Sunday morning service in about an hour or so. And then uh, I will finish up in the middle of the week, uh, middle of the week of this month, uh, Wednesday this month. Uh, what would be the biggest takeaway? I think for me the biggest takeaway from the book of Revelation is something that's going to sound very fundamental to uh, to Wes, I'm sure, if you've read the Melchizedek book. And that is the migration from um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, legalism, etc., which is, to me, the heart of the church, all those things that we talk about in the book of Revelation. It's moving away from that because the way that the book of Revelation ends is only with one tree, and that is the tree of life. And it's very specific as we move through the book of Revelation. Um, so, that Can we would increase be the... John's volume, please? Increase John's volume. So, we, instead of getting all involved in all of the various symbology, the trees, all of that, the big takeaway 
John, uh, and it, that might be your mic that you're moving closer, which would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, you're you're saying that we move away from uh, the, all the legalism of the various trees that are displayed there to what's really the one tree, which is the tree of life. Uh, do you liken Correct. that then to the trees in the garden? The takeaway is you, you, you sort of summarize things into the tree of life versus the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How, do <coughs> yeah, that, how the, does that work in the book of Revelation, though, since you've got all of this going on? Well, I think, I think one, one of the things, things I talked about at the very beginning of the, the study is that what I have found about the book of Revelation is that it's a book of theater, uh, it's a theatrical book. It's like a poetical play. So what these visions of heaven and things that we see are, are done twofold and they're very specific to Persian theater. So we kind of get wrapped up into these, the symbologies, but the symbologies are metaphorical, really repeating with the first two, two, uh, two key chapters of Revelation, which is chapters three and four, which talks about the seven churches. The rest of the book is really a recapitulation of what was discussed with those three churches, um, where you find the church that's lost its first love, you know, getting into works and all that, and then it finally ends with those two churches, Philadelphia, a brotherly love, and of course in the lukewarm church, which is exactly where the book of Revelation starts to include when we hit chapter 18 and 19, which is it's just a, another Hebraic block logic way of explaining the same story over and over again. So in the end, though, where it ends in the end is about life-giving. It talks about how the tree of life, its leaves will heal, heal the nations. How the, the gates of the new Jerusalem where the, the tree of life is, and the Lord is, and we are, will never be shut. It's always open, and there's always a beckoning call to come. So um, it's really a theatrical play to be teaching us in the frame of mind of that day of how to migrate away from all these cliche terms we use now, legalism, religion, all those things, into a very free, gracious expression of life. All right. Thank you, sir. And Wes, I trust that that uh, will assist you in your study through the book of Revelation. Okay. Do we have any questions that have come through? Lisa, would you be willing to take the microphone to anybody that has a question, please? Come, come grab that mic. Is there anyone in the room here that has uh, a question you'd like to ask? Everybody's thinking, thinking, yeah. thinking. So you can ask it over the microphone. We do need it to go out over the air, so you'll want to either ask it into the microphone or text your question to us so that we can restate it. Okay, well, while you all are thinking, here's another hefty question. Is God in complete control of everything, even bad things, or is it free will? Hmm. Well, that's kind of the age old. I mean, that's the standby, right? And uh, everybody wants to know that. If God is good, why does he allow people to suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? All of those kind of questions are tied up in that, in that one. 
My comment about that, and again, any of the panelists, including John, are welcome to speak to this, uh, including a differing, perhaps, slant on things, which we invite. That's what this is about. While we believe God to be, quote, sovereign, and we could argue what that means, he has limited his sovereignty through our free will. He will not override my free will to jump off a building. Hello, how many of you are with me? And thus experience the law of gravity which might end my life on the earth. Did God do that? No, the law of gravity took over. Similarly, there are laws in the earth which govern or may I say might be the response to decisions that I make. Could God have stopped me from jumping off the building? I think all of us believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing God who could have intervened and stopped me from jumping off. But see, that's that delicate area where God refuses to touch, at least up to a certain point, and override your will. Now, does God do things to intervene in, maybe leading up to my struggle with mental health, my struggle with the overwhelming thoughts to, um, to jump off the building? Could he send somebody? Could somebody be praying in the night hours and, and uh, in response to that, the Holy Spirit comes and sets me free from that overwhelming thought to do that? Absolutely, and I believe God works every day, constantly, in our lives and throughout the earth to influence such decisions. But we're talking about an absolute in your question, and I'm answering you absolutely that the, God has limited his sovereignty uh, out of a respect for the free will that he gave us and created us with. Well, if, if I, I can, can throw, throw a thought, thought in with that, that I, I think there's a significant difference between creator and controller. And I would suggest that while the creator has created, as Jeff is pointing towards, the day, going back to that good old garden, the day that God gave us a choice between the two trees, he relinquished control of our individual lives and our choices unless we relationally invite him into those things. That doesn't mean he's not in the perimeters, always trying to enter into that relationship just as much as a, um, a romance uh, would be going on where someone is in love with another and trying to win them, so to speak. But there, as Jeff said, it's a great balance. But I think the challenge is, is we equate creator and controller as the same thing. And that's not always Excellent. the case. Lisa, or I mean Nina or Matt? <laughs> So I think, um, first of all, thank you for inviting me to be part of this. I'm honored by that. Um, uh, 
to understand that question, and I have had that question throughout my life, and usually when I have that question, it's when something bad happens. Um, and to understand why, why that question is so common, uh, things in this life, God has allowed, you know, allowed, I'll put air quotes around that, um, that we, we perceive that God is allowing. We don't want to feel pain. We don't want to feel um, discomfort. We want our life to go perfectly. And when we do feel dis discomfort and pain, we have this reaction of, what is it that's causing this, and how can I get rid of it, and why is it doing it? And there's a, when, when we're talking about your relationship with God, your, your life, and who you are, well, what I believe uh, is that there's an infinite timeline, um, and that the pain that you experience today will only last for a little while, but who you become in the process of that will last forever. And so God is not the author of evil. Um, he doesn't create evil, and he doesn't stand by and watch while evil is happening. But when evil does happen because of our free will, he always, he always creates something good out of that. He always takes that and, and uses it to make you into something better. Um, and I, I have this, uh, there's a correlation here, and I used to be a math teacher for 14 years, and when I would be teaching math, especially uh, I can remember geometry and, proof, and proofs, and my students, what's the question that the students always ask? Yeah, Lisa got it. What, what good is this going to do me? Why do I have to learn this? I'm never going to use this in my life. I'm not going to be an engineer or a scientist or a mathematician. Mm. This is a waste of my time. And my response would always be, you are never going to use this in your life, but you are always going to use this in your life. And this can't become stronger without going through this difficult process of creating new neural pathways, which is difficult. And I think that the same thing is true when we're looking at our spiritual lives. When you go through difficult things and when people exact evil on other humans in the world, it creates pain. But that pain is a motivator and that pain causes you to change. If there was no change or if there was no pain, if there was no discomfort, then you would never move and you would never change from who you are. And so I think when you look at a larger perspective that this life is just a, just a piece. Uh, and I think even, even if there were no afterlife, even if there were no eternity, I think when I look back at the things that I've gone through that are difficult, um, every single one of those, because I have, and I, and I have been angry at God, I have been for many times in my life, um, but I can look back now and see that every single one of those things created something in me that I was missing and that I needed, and God knew that. That's, that's excellent, excellent stuff. And I think part of what you're saying here is, is there's sometimes greater principles than others. And, um, you know, there's a, I mean, I certainly have believed and we've taught about taking authority over negative things, over evil, over sickness and over that. But, you know, in that concept, there's an element of I get to be in control. Hmm. Do we really? Do we really get to be in control? Is that what this is all about? And I think that there's a greater principle than 
taking authority as much as we want to take authority over sickness so we don't want anybody to be sick and we have compassion upon the sick and we see that Jesus healed all the sick that came to him I realize all of that but I think that there's a greater principle of our relationship with God that these things bring us to or can bring us to and that's what you were also talking about we change and there's the greater principle of I'm seeking God over an in uncontrollable issue and, I'm, and it kind of makes us, well, again, there's people who turn from God and get angry and never come back. I get that. But for those of us who love God, it, it causes us to push into God, to, to seek him more, to find out what is he saying. And what is he, and you know, I think sometimes the answers too are, what is he saying right now in this situation? I think it, we don't want to legalistically look at taking authority over negative things any more than we want to legalistically look at anything else. I think we're supposed to be led by the Spirit, not by these one, two, three, four formulas that much of our faith has come up with. So that leads me to a question someone asked me this week that goes kind of along with what we're saying. And, and she said, do you believe it's ever okay to pray that God would go ahead and take somebody and take them out of their suffering? Hmm. And I said, well, yes, actually, I do. I do believe that. And, and how do you know when that is? How do you know when to say, Lord, heal them, and Lord, take them out of that suffering? I don't know other to, than, first of all, to say, Lord, your will, and number two, to, to, to do your best to be listening, to pressing into God, listening to what he's saying. I know I have had friends uh, who have passed that before they passed, I, I felt that's probably what was going to happen. But I felt compelled to pray for their healing, and yet I felt compelled to pray that they would be at peace with their situation. Yeah, really good. And be able to peacefully move on into the next life. Wow. I'm married to brilliance, and I also have, by extension, a son of brilliance. Those are fabulous answers, guys. Well, let me, I mean, I want to give chance for other questions here, but I'm going to just throw a seed in here for you to think about. Because this idea that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, unchangeable, uh, leads us to wrong theology and not just this area and this question, but into a number of things. And I've been, I've been seriously looking at something that I first caught, that caught my attention first through the writings of um, um, repenting Greg Boyd, who wrote a tremendous book, Repenting of Religion. And uh, it was probably front and center in leading me into the deconstruction that I've been going through and helping me get past a lot of my own personal legalism and judgmentalism and come into a much more loving walk and understanding of the DNA of God. Um, Greg is an open theist. And uh, John, I'm sure you've, you've heard of that, but um, in a nutshell, and I, I won't do it justice, I'm sure, but open theism doesn't see God as an absolute, absolute ruler, uh, that uh, he is all-powerful, all-knowing, 
that his, um, what's the original word we used in this question? In this question it was used. If God is in complete control of everything. Okay, and there's a word for that. But so, yeah. So if God is all of these things, sovereign, if God is truly sovereign, then why do these things happen? But what if, and this would be the view of open theism, that while God can know any, everything, he chooses not to, which leaves open the realm of possibility. It actually makes my prayer more exciting to know that God is not a God of determination and he's pre-decided everything, and he's all-powerful and all-knowing and omniscient, but that he walks with me through my daily life, and he makes decisions with me, and he speaks to me, and moves in my heart, and blesses and encourages, and, and I just find this whole idea of open theism really beautiful from the standpoint of it leaves open the realm of possibility and takes God out of this place of sovereign determinism. I'll just drop that as a seed. Next question. None? I wanna I'll add something to that last one too. I think uh, we have this, this idea that, well, if God could you know, at least eliminate the really bad stuff, right? Uh, so, and then we have the, you know, okay, so where does he stop, right? We, okay, well, we stop murderers um, and we'll stop uh, people that are uh, trafficking humans and we'll stop people that are um, selling guns on the black market that are causing violence. And, and then we, we say, okay, well, let's, let's also then stop people that are corrupt in government that are taking advantage of populations. And then we have this, this definition of what we believe is evil. And um, there was, I was listening to a podcast yesterday and it was talking about the, 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 the general lack of reflection we have on ourselves. I don't know if I'm losing volume, but um, we see the evil in other people, but when we are looking at ourselves, we tend to purify and we tend to distort the vision of what wow. we are and who we are. And so we, we look at our motives as pure and, and, and positive, whereas yeah. someone else who doesn't agree with us, we look at their motives as selfish and negative. Um, and, and so to say God should eliminate all the evil and all the, things, the bad things that happen in the world is to say that God should eliminate you because there really is no, there really is no sliding scale here. It, um, because most of, in my experience, most of the problems in the world and the, the pain in the world is caused by the selfishness of individuals, and we all have that. Really so. good. That's really good. Wow. All right, consider something. Since we're on this subject and there aren't new questions, let's bring the, just the idea and the word suffering into this. Uh, in the circles I ha ran in and in the circles uh, of influence and education that I was trained in through both uh, Bible school as well as the Word of Faith movement and, and so forth, we didn't believe in suffering. Suffering was something to be cursed. 
Suffering was something to mount up and rebuke and command it to leave. And uh, yeah, it just, it just wasn't part of my theology. And then in concert with repenting from religion and reading after many of the great authors that I've opened my reading to, Brad Jerzak, Brian Zahn, John Master Giovanni, and many others, I've come to understand something that Richard Rohr wrote a book about called Falling Upward. It's the idea that we spend the first phase of our life, about the first 40 years, trying to establish ourselves and find out who we are. And then in the second half, we discover that many of the things that we believed weren't true and we find ourselves in a sort of falling forward. If you think about any particular book of the Bible or any particular passage with which you are familiar where the idea of suffering uh, would be uh, mentioned or come into view, what book would it be or what passage in the Bible would it be? The book of Job, of course. Now, very quickly, it's not the place of this panel for us to go through the book of Job and explain all of the wonderful theology that's in there. But let's just say that we know that Job came into great suffering and that including his own family members, his wife specifically, and three specific friends that were very dear close friends, all of them had pat answers for why Job was experiencing suffering. They all knew, and most of it had to do with God is judging you because of sin in your life. You know, you need to change this, or, uh, and if you change this about your lifestyle, your whatever, the way you worship, then God would bring again his hand of favor. That, that's a generalization of the book of Job for the first number of chapters. But Job refused that, and Job refused to curse God, and Job refused what his friends were saying, and spoke about suffering, and spoke about the wisdom of God, and spoke about humbling himself under what was going on, that, that just maybe God had a hand in some of this. And so by the very last chapter, a couple of the last verses written in Job, I want you to listen. Verse 5 of chapter 42. I had only heard about you, Lord, before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said. I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. I think a lot of us in Christian Christianity, but especially Western, evangelical, Western evangelicalism, are fond of throwing pat answers at difficult subjects. And we think we know because we serve a God of determinism. And Job said, Lord, I used to think I really knew you before, but now the curtain's been pulled back. I see you through my suffering. I've seen something about you I never saw. I think this speaks beautifully to 
what you brought up and what you said about it. And I just say to you that while I do not believe that God makes us sick to teach us and uses sickness and pain and suffering to bring about his greater will, I don't think he initiates those kind of things necessarily, but I do believe that in our suffering that there's a mystery to suffering. There's a mystery to sin. There's a mystery to being human. There's a mystery to being on this earth. In fact, Paul talks about the mystery of Christ and the mystery of faith. So here's what I'm trying to say in all of this. You need to be okay with mystery. You need to be okay with not having a pat answer for everything in your life. And you know why? Because it should drive you to the feet of Jesus to wrap your arms around him and say, I trust you. I trust you in sickness, in death, in life, in joy, in overwhelming circumstances, in victory and a new job and everything's going great. I trust you in the middle of all of it and I'm going to fall forward. Even in my suffering, I'm going to fall forward. I think that is a huge you know. theological shift for many, especially who are in a Pentecostal, charismatic, word of faith, non-denominational tradition, which I, I, I hail from. John? Yeah, I, I hail from the same place, by the way. I would like to pick up on something Can Matt we lift said his earlier. Voice? I just need him louder, whatever you need to do. Sorry about that. Um, is that, that any better? I'll lift up my voice a little. And, and we're bringing it up in here to be louder on the feet okay. as well as in the sanctuary, please. Louder. Well, what I, what I was, what was going to say was I wanted to pick up on something Matthew said before, and, and it's one word in, in the, his explanation that I think highlights it, uh, and that's the word selfish. Um, I use the phrase ego a lot. Not necessarily in the Freudian sense, but more in the pre-Freudian tradition of uh, the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Um, the point I, uh, I think I want to make, too, is just a suggestion. You know, the whole notion, first of all, of good and evil is the serpent's tree. Let's just establish that once again. So the whole notion that there's a good and an evil is an illusion in one respect. There's something, it's, as, as Jeff was just pointing out, there's something way larger. And Nina said it also. What's the bigger picture here? Um, I want to read two little scriptures that are really annoying. I just got done doing a, a, a teaching last week on this at church called Engaging Fear. Um, and the first one is this. In uh, Luke chapter 4, it says... Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert for 40 days. He was tempted by the devil. In Matthew, it says he was led to be tempted of the devil. Now, here's the thing I would like to finish with a verse and then say something about it. 
we have a picture that what Jesus did is use the written word of God to point to the devil and say, well, the word of God says this. And after we did that three times, the devil finally left because it's a defeated foe. I'm going to suggest to you that's not even close to the truth. I'm going to suggest to you this verse toward the end of it. And it says in verse 13, when the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. There was a process. It went on for 40 days. And he didn't, Satan didn't leave because Jesus whipped him. Satan left, if you want to use these terms, because the process was finished. And because we have been programmed, a lot of us in Western Christianity, Jeff pointed that out, I love the idea of open theism. Um, is that what program that all these things we have to conquer, which in my view is that selfish ego that Matt was talking about, saying, I've got to be victorious in all this. I've got, I've got, I've got, I've got. And um, as if there's a destination here, in one respect, Jesus returned then in the power of the Spirit is because the devil finished the process he was in for that period of time. A lot of us abort that rather than flowing with that. And in my view, I'm, I'm going to use the word a little differently. I, I believe we all have pain. But in one respect, suffering kicks in because our ego is resisting the process. And if we flow with the process, we may learn something from Jesus. You know, he didn't turn the stone into bread. Because the whole question of is if he's looking at that, if I'm the son of God, I can do this. To me, that's where the fearful temptation. He was afraid. Am I the son of God or not? Sovereignty, yeah. Right, exactly. And you know what, though? I think because he didn't turn the stone, the rock, into bread, he was later able to say, I'm the bread of life. And the rock that the bills rejected. <laughs> Both. <Wow. laughs> what a beautiful uh, parsing of scripture there. What a, what a beautiful exegesis. Because he didn't fall to the temptation of turning the rock into bread to, ame- to meet an immediate, an immediate need of hunger and to deliver himself quickly from, quote, suffering or pain. He then becomes the bread of life and the rock of our salvation. Oh my goodness. Anybody? Really? Nothing you just wanted to know. Ask it over the mic. Uh, First, I have to ask John what your mug says. Could you ask it without your mask, Lisa? I have to know what your mug says. <laughs> okay. It's, first of all, it's a Star Trek mug. And on the back it says, um, there, there it is, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Yes. Okay, no wonder my mom loves you. Uh, this question is for you, not that the other panelists can't answer it, but um, I might know Who? a little bit. It's John? for you, John. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. 
yeah, I might know a little bit of their opinion on this question, but uh, being the parent of adult children, what would you recommend or what is your advice to parents on the best thing they can do to help their kids be successful in life? Wow. Um, <laughs> Harder than the last it's one. Am I glad she steered that to you? Well, in some cases, get out of their way. Um, <laughs> um, I, you know, I think parenting, again, it goes back to how I view myself as a parent as opposed to what's going on with my children. Um, Again, everything we've been talking about, from temptations to being in control, all that sort of stuff. I mean, how many times us parents want to be in control? Because we think if we control them, they'll learn better. Gee, how well did that work for us? Um, I would say this. When children are young, sure, they need to be shepherded strongly. But when they hit their teenage years, I think our world changes from... Uh, parent to coach. And we're more of a coach to our kids then and trying to fix them and fix what's going on that they need to go through some stuff and then finally when our kids are adults at that point there may be some mentoring moments but I need to allow them to be the incredible people they've grown up to be and discover them as friend. I don't know. That's the fast thing. It, wow. To me, it goes back to the very question that started this about control and creator. I created my children, but really should I be controlling them? If I do, chances are I'll hamper their, their development and growth. We have a question? No, we actually, we actually have an addition to that. Oh, okay. In Psalms 127, verse 3, and the version that I like quoting uh, said it this way, children are like arrows in the hands of a skilled archer. Blessed is the man who has a quiverful. In Proverbs 22.6, and this is a very familiar scripture for most, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not defer from it or part from it. In archery, when you pull back your arrow to aim it, it is called training your arrow. Taking those two scriptures together, when you train your arrow, in order for it to hit the target, you have to let it go. You have to release it. You have to let them be who they've been trained up to be and let that take our course. And I might add to that, Jim, excellent. Um, who This is our children's pastor who just made that comment that the scripture oft quoted, train up a child in the way that he should go and when he is old. We, I always took that to mean, I'll train them up in the way that I think they should go because bless God, I know the right way because bless God, I know the word of God. But the, the more correct interpretation of that, if you do a little exegesis on the, on the Hebrew there is train them up in the way, discover the way of their identity and what God's put in them and bless them with and come alongside and, and foster that. Train them in that. 
Bring them along in that. Say amen to that. Encourage them in that. It, it takes a lot more discernment to find out what's in a child and the, and, and the gift and the blessing and the direction of the Lord in their life than it does to just bring the rod and the rule and say, you will follow this way because this is my understanding of Scripture. So it's really more about the child, train them up in the gift that's in them and they'll not depart from that because truth is all of us eventually pursue our passion. Your heart wants, your heart wants what your heart wants. Okay, and you're, you're never really in life going to not pursue that. You might not obtain it, and you might not have the money to get to some of the dream, but your heart wants what your heart wants, and that's because God's placed that passion in your inner desire to be something that he created us to be. I know you've got your mic raised, and both of you do. No, I was going to make a joke. <laughs> what happens well, if you let go of the arrow and it's going the wrong direction? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yes, go ahead. You can leave that <laughs> Okay, another question. And by the way, welcome, Pastor Wes. We, we're looking forward to having you up on this panel. And, uh, and wait till you hear John's answer to your question. <laughs> okay, here's a question. Why doesn't God reveal himself more obviously in everyday life? Hmm. Well, I have thoughts about that question. Well, go ahead. So, you know, throughout Proverbs where it talks about seeking wisdom, of course, speaking of seeking God, seeking understanding, I think this all gets back to relationship because to me, he is obvious in everyday life, but that's because I've had over 40 years of seeking him and I'm now more sensitive to his presence in everyday life. It's a developing of a relationship. This is my thoughts on it. There may be better answers than this, but, but my thoughts are that as, as we're seeking him again, it's all this, this whole religion thing, this whole faith thing, it's all about a relationship with the living God. And so as I'm seeking him, as I'm getting to know him, as I'm getting to understand his voice, you know, as we've heard over all the years, yeah, you call somebody and you go, hi, and you don't say your name, do they recognize your voice? Yes, if you've called often enough, right? You know, so the more you've talked to a person, the more you've gotten to understand them, the more you recognize what's happening. Well, the same is true with God. So I think it, as we develop our relationship with the Lord and, 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 and want to be around him, we suddenly become, maybe not suddenly, but we become more and more sensitive to where he is every day in life. We just talked about that question a week ago for some reason or another. I don't remember. It was what we were, the question that came up last week in church. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think you know, I, to me, he is obvious, but I've had a long, many, many years of working towards that relationship. So I can, okay, you might laugh. I can see him in a bird. I can see him in a tree. And Pastor West, don't you laugh at me. <laughs> I, I can see him in you. <laughs> I, can, I can see him in, in things obvious and not obvious. Um, and, but again, it's about you, I've become sensitive to the fact that he's here through practice, through relationship, building relationship. 
One thing's for sure, excellent, thank you, honey, that your idea of God will influence your ability to perceive God, to see God. So whatever you imagine God to be will absolutely influence your sight of God. All right, we're moving into, quickly here, we're going to entertain one more question and then we're going to celebrate communion together. So do prepare your elements there at home as we move in this direction. Maybe you can be the first to answer this next question. Okay, here's the next question. And this is probably our last question then, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Yeah. What does it mean to really depend on or trust God and not our own understanding? I think this one ties in exactly to the last one and basically about what I was going to say anyway. Um, I think, so can you just read it again? Yes. I mean, I just want to make sure I'm... Okay. What does it mean to really depend on or trust God rather than our own understanding? Okay. Yeah. So I think what I was going to add to the, uh, the previous question is, um, for me, there was a whole bunch of form and ritual when I would, when I would try and talk to God. And um, when I would try and connect with God, I had to do it through worship and you had to like do the right things and I had to connect with God by going to church or reading my Bible or having a quiet time in the morning and um, this also ties back into the original question uh, the first question where the difficult times in my life are where the the religious pardon pardon the phrase BS was burned away and where I really was because I was desperate I connected with God and so this right here, the, the next question, um, to depend on and to trust God and not on your own understanding, you, you, you go through enough things and you, you experience enough times of being wrong <laughs> or having an, a perception in life that you were certain of, and it starts to melt away your trust in yourself. Um, one of the things that I, that I believe about myself is the more that I learn, the less that I believe I know. <laughs> And I think that that process in life is, is something that is so incredibly valuable. Uh, I preached a sermon on certainty uh, last January, and since that time, I've been challenged myself uh, having a conversation with someone. Well, I think this. Why do I think that, right? And, 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 and it's just developing um, something where... It's called metacognition where you're thinking about what you're thinking. So there's like your, your mind above your brain and your brain has this reaction because I'm certain of this. Um, and your mind can say, but why are you certain of it? And you can check those things with, with scripture and with God. And, you can, and that I think is where you start to begin to, tr- to rely on, on God. And you start to be able to rely on um, you start to have a greater sense of humility and a greater sense of, of wonder and a greater sense of, of mystery about, I don't know everything, I'm certain of that. <laughs> uh, and that's when you start to get into that place um, of trusting God that, yeah, if I mess this up, uh, I know that God's gonna, gonna catch me and carry me because I, I know I'm gonna screw some things up. Uh, and if I... 
am uncertain, I know that God is going to reveal himself through processes in my life and things just because I know he has and he, he's yes. promised he will. So. Wow, really great. John, I can't thank you enough for joining us uh, today. I know you've done so with responsibilities that you have yourself now to, to go to the sanctuary uh, where you help pastor, where you co-pastor with your wife and, and deliver a message that you've been studying diligently for. So thank you for making time. And by the way, in Matt's answer just now, I, I believe I heard a new name for the tree. So we have the tree of life and we have the tree of BS. <laughs> I, I think that's what I understood. Absolutely, yeah, that's, of, I agree with that. The tree yeah. of BS. So I, I think that works, <clears throat> the tree of life and the tree of BS. And, and so we bid you goodbye. God bless you. We'll talk soon. And thank you for being part of our, our conversation. Thank, thank you, guys. guys. Love, Love you all. all. Be, Be good. good. All right, everybody, uh, communion is being passed out there at home. If you would, get your elements. And if we could, Lewis, please go ahead with the background. really could be boiled down to which was relationship and he said that he said one of the most difficult things that he ever talked about was that they could eat his body and in that dinner and in fact when he made that statement it was earlier on in the day while he was traveling and teaching he said, you've got to eat my body and you've got to drink my blood. And with that statement, the majority of the people that had been following him and attending his crusades and just thought he was the greatest left. They stopped following him because he had said something so difficult that they couldn't understand. At dinner in the evening, he took the bread and he said, this, this bread is my broken body. It's given for you. So this is not merely a symbol. 
this is an element where the supernatural power of God touches us in our brokenness. And from this, while we, when we take this right now, what we're saying is, Lord, I'm okay with mystery. I'm okay with wonder. I'm okay with humility. Because like with you, I know it's going to be okay. You're going to take brokenness and turn it in to relationship with God. Let's take and eat the body of the Lord. And after supper, he took the cup. And likewise, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood as often as you take it or drink it do it in remembrance of me here's what I want us to remember today that in whatever the circumstances are that you're going through and in whatever brokenness you might be experiencing I'd ask you to move away from the idea that God is sovereign he's just going to work it out and I need an immediate now answer that might be BS let's move away from that let's accept wonder and mystery and because what we're saying now by drinking this is I throw myself I throw myself at your feet as it were I throw myself upon being co-crucified co-buried and co-risen you will bring me you will like he got into the boat there was storm but he brought them to the other side. God will bring you to the other side. He's promised by his blood. Let's take and drink. Well, why don't you share the remaining announcements before we all slip out of here? A few announcements, of course. We appreciate your giving. Um, there's three ways to give. There's in-person here, and there's um, an offering big basket in the back where you can leave your tithes and offerings, donations. You can go online to genesiscc.net to give, and you can text to give at 720-730-8510. For those of you that are online, there's a QR code. You could hold your phone right up to that, and it'll take you to the giving uh, spot as well. And we thank you for your faithfulness to support the ministry and mission of, of Genesis Gathering. Hey, we have, I'm sure you've already been hearing about it in just two weeks. Rachel Washington's going to be with us. We're very so excited. Exciting. It'll be a tremendous um, concert here, worship experience with Rachel. Invite friends, invite family. Come on out the 17th at 7 p.m. Hey, and we just finished Thanksgiving food boxes, but we're now ready to do Christmas food boxes. And since that's coming up so quickly, we have one week. So if you have food you can bring sometimes this week or on Sunday, next Sunday, bring it out into the foyer area, or you can give donations again. We did through, the, we're coupling with St. John's to do this, and but we did support three of our very own families uh, with food during Thanksgiving, and we will again with Christmas. So bring your food, bring your donations, financial donations, and then um, some of the faithful members of St. John's uh, take it upon themselves to prepare those boxes for us. 
And that has to be by next Sunday, okay? Because then the next Sunday we will hand them out. And um, Christmas Eve, we're very excited to be joining St. John's for Christmas Eve service. It will be at 5 p.m. Hopefully that's nice and early and you can still go and enjoy your family or bring your family to church and then go do whatever you want to do family-wise for Christmas Eve. We're actually having an active part in the service. For instance, Matt and Lisa will be participating with music. And so we're thrilled to join St. John's. And this oneness that God's brought us together with St. John's has just been so yeah, phenomenal. Special. And what a... Yeah, very special and so speaks to oneness in the body of the Christ. We're all just so blessed by it. Anyway, Christmas Eve will be one of those opportunities where we can see that come together, where we're together. Um, you know, I didn't ask for prayer requests earlier, but I do have some prayer requests uh, that we'd like to pray for. And if anybody wants to send us some, feel free to text me at 720 878 Three three two three. If we don't get them in time for the time that we pray right now, we will certainly pray throughout the week. And uh, let me pull up some prayer requests that we have gotten. Uh, so um, let me go ahead and just read them for Cheryl's three-year-old great-grandson, Jackson, who's un very unusually uh, has a bad case of shingles uh, for Elaine's marriage. For the Oxford School here locally after the shooting this week and that they could heal from that and mm. return to classes. For Robert, uh, the serious depression that uh, leads to suicidal thoughts. Prayer for Mary's friends, Cheryl and Jackie struggling with cancer. Prayers for Gwen and her family who recently lost her, their adult daughter to COVID. For Taylin's heart valve. For Jeff uh, to overcome this edema. John going through cancer treatments, um, Cheryl's Uncle Bill, bladder and kidney. We have a lot of folks dealing with some physical issues as we normally do. And, I'm, and I apologize, I feel like I've, I've missed something putting someone here on the list that they told us to pray. Um, we're going to trust that God knows exactly who that is, amen. Okay, shall we all pray together? And uh, Father, we come to you and ask you, Lord God, for your hand of healing and help and hope to each one of these distressing and uh, difficult situations, Lord. We thank you for your um, comfort and your counsel, your guidance, for wisdom for doctors and nurses and technicians involved, Father. We pray for a heart of love and forgiveness and healing in that marriage. And we pray, Father, that people's minds also are made healthy and whole and that you lead them into a process, Father, of wholeness. And we thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayers. We thank you that we can partner with you. We thank you, Lord, that we can partner with each other and you and come to you with these requests. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Livestream congregation, we bid you goodbye. Have a great week, and we'll see you next week.